So just as we did with the metta practice, to sit as comfortably as you can. And we have a similar kind of progression that we address our, uh, the compassion phrases to a progression of categories of people, but it's slightly different than the uh, progression in metta, where we start with a dear friend who we know is having a difficult time or is in sorrow or suffering or pain. And we address our phrases to them. To them. And the, as I said before, there are several phrases that you can use. You can use the phrases of, I see your suffering. I care about your suffering. May your suffering end. Or may you meet the suffering with tenderness and gentleness and care. Or however else you want to formulate the, um, the phrase so that it becomes meaningful for you. The import or the meaning of it being simply that you are present for the suffering, that you see the suffering that is there, and that it's your deepest wish that the suffering will end, or that the causes of that suffering will end. Or that the suffering, if it cannot end, can be met with tenderness and gentleness. And we start with, as I said, a dear friend who's suffering. And then we can um, move on to someone in our lives who may be difficult. So we start with the friend that we care about and we have concern about. And then we move to the, a difficult person. And as Sharon was saying this morning, we try not to have like the worst person in our lives that we use as our difficult person because we're cultivating the ground. So we try to uh, work maybe with someone who is um, just slightly annoying or who you've had a, or, or irritating, or who you've had a tiff with, a small tiff, not a huge, you know, to do about something, but just somebody that right now you're not getting along so well. So they, you, you can think of them as difficult, slightly difficult. Of course, as Sharon said, you may also completely ignore that instruction. That's up to you. Well, that's a beautiful question. If you're the difficult person, then by all means, please use yourself as the difficult person because until we, until we deal with the difficult person internally, it's very difficult to deal with the difficult person externally. So if that's who you want to use, uh, I think it's Gandhi who used to say that he was the most difficult person in his life, even more difficult than the, uh, than the British. So... Um, so by all means, if, but we were going to get to ourselves after the difficult person. But of course, if we merge them, then so be it. And then we'll move to all beings. 
Okay. So again, sit comfortably. And bring to mind a friend who is having a difficult time, whether physically or emotionally, who you know there is suffering in that person's life. And I find it helpful to imagine that person resting on my heart as I direct the phrases, the phrase to them. Try to have as vivid a picture as you can of the person. And let your gaze be somewhat steady on the person. I see your suffering. I care about your suffering. May your suffering end. May the causes of your suffering end. Or may you be free from suffering. If the mind goes into a story about their suffering or or anything else. Again, this is a practice, and we simply notice that the mind has strayed and bring the attention back to the person. You may tend to tell the story about the suffering. Just notice that and bring the gaze back to, the internal gaze back to the person. I see your suffering. I care about your suffering. May your suffering end. May you be free from suffering. And you can continue in getting a, as good a rhythm as you can, so slowly and deliberately, establishing presence. And it's always possible, if for some reason it begins to feel overwhelming, to turn your care and attention to this feeling of being overwhelmed 
and address the phrases to yourself. But if not, you can stay with the person to whom you're addressing the phrases of compassion. you wish to put your hand on your heart, sometimes that is helpful. Then you can stay with your friend or you can move to the mildly annoying or difficult person. Again, bringing an image of that person into to mind. Perhaps seeing that the very thing that is annoying you is the thing that causes that person's suffering. Can you see that suffering? Can you recognize it and stay present for it? I see your suffering. I care about your suffering. May you be free from suffering. May your suffering and the causes of suffering end. the mind is telling a story or giving an opinion about the suffering, and simply bow to it, thank it for its opinion, and continue your practice. I see your suffering. May your suffering end. I care about your suffering. May your suffering and the causes of suffering end.
You can stay with either of those categories of people, your friend or your difficult person, or you can move on to yourself. Again, getting as clear a picture as you can, placing it on the heart. I see my suffering. I care about my suffering. May I be free from suffering. May I be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May my suffering end. May I meet it with gentleness, tenderness, and caring. And then moving on to all beings. I care about the suffering of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May their suffering end.
So we have some time for questions. Somebody have the microphone? Um, I have a question as a healthcare worker um, working in an uh, environment where um, it's high volume, mostly people who have been in work-related accidents or automobile accidents. And um, I was wondering, for those of us who are healthcare workers, how can we protect ourselves, I guess, from taking on too much pain and suffering of others, but at the same time show that compassion for ourselves and for the patient? So compassion doesn't um, require you to move into the pain and take it on, or to move into the suffering and take it on. But what it does um, it does help you to do is to not have to push it away or turn away from it, um, but understand that this is a part of life. So that's part of the wisdom is that, and the, and the understanding that all we that we can only do what we can do, right? So that it's not that every inability to help someone isn't a failure that there, as Sharon was saying this morning, there's so many causes and conditions that connect to each event that we are playing a part, but we're not necessarily the major part or the only part of all of the causes and conditions that come together to produce an outcome, right? So we can tend our small garden, our small part of that event and have an open heart that wishes for the suffering of others to end and have uh, the balance that knows that we are not completely in control of the outcome of how it will, of how it will um, resolve or not resolve. Sharon, do you want to say something? Um. I mean, in a way, this is part of the difficulty of having these four qualities broken up, because your question is really uh, mostly about the quality of equanimity mm. and having balance, which um, doesn't mean indifference. It really means perspective. It's like the perspective Gina was talking about. So it's all the things we try to remember and can remember in those moments. And I think um, part of the way I would respond more directly to your question has to do with recognizing certain triggers for oneself. Sometimes it's almost a visceral sense in the body when you feel yourself being drawn into something. Um, and then the wisdom, often hard-earned wisdom, that that sort of toppling into someone's story, someone's situation, the feelings of helplessness, whatever, 
are actually not going to help you really help them. Uh, it's going to be too much. You're going to get overwhelmed. So the first part is a cognitive understanding, which is not that easy of what compassion is and isn't. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, it's just like Gina was saying, we think that feeling of overwhelm is the right feeling. It is the compassionate feeling. Instead of realizing that it's too much, it's too out of balance. So that's the first part is really um, deeply knowing and remembering that. And the second part I really find for myself, there are these kinds of um, waves of certain sensations that happen. Mm when I'm about to get completely immersed or overcome or overwhelmed. And once I can recognize them, I can pretty easily just say, like, settle back. Or this is not up to you. This is not, you know, in your hands or whatever it might be. The hard part is learning to recognize the mm -hmm. sensation. Much harder than kind of coming back into balance, but that's also why uh, we practice. Somebody um, interviewed me the other day for a magazine. It was actually good housekeeping, which anyone who's been to my house finds very amusing. <laughs> Any of my houses, they chuckle and chortle when they hear that, things like that. But um, the, uh, I forget when it's going to come out, or who knows if I'll even be in it in the end, but the article is about using mindfulness and using meditation uh, when dealing with a crisis, like a traumatic incident or you know a terrible crisis. And the first thing I heard myself say was, "Well, usually we try not to wait. You know, that's why we practice in ordinary times, like an ordinary day or every day, so that." when we're in you know, a very challenging, demanding situation, that's not the moment we think, now what was it I wanted to do? <laughs> you know, but we've really practiced and inculcated that kind of sensitivity and understanding. Thank you both, it's been a great day. Gina, I have a question for you. Um, there was one of your talks here at New York Insight that you shared some personal experience of your own and you said something so beautiful that a teacher had said to you, I often, myself, don't, I want to say more when someone loses someone special, you know, rather than I'm thinking about you. And for the life of me, I couldn't remember the whole thing that your teacher said to you when you had experienced a loss. And it was something about finding the space, I hope you find, find this space you had written to your teacher when your mother had passed and you I think as I recall you were ex sort of maybe thinking he would write back something long and it was a short phrase like I hope you can find this space for this and I guess what I'm asking is that I'm looking for some language <laughs> maybe you could write a little thing on it <laughs> of more work. Something a little bit more mindful and insightful with my meditation practice that when someone ha has experienced a loss of death in the family or something traumatic rather than I'm thinking of you. Something, uh, and I know I could look through books and find it, but I just remember you had said something and it struck me. I don't know if it's mm -hmm. something that has stayed with you. Or... Well, I don't remember is the first thing. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. So there you go. 
Um, but I, what, I, what I can say is that whatever it was he said, I'm sure came deeply from his heart in that very present moment. And so was, because he was connected to whatever experience I was having, he was able to respond in the most appropriate way. And so I think it's not so much the words themselves, but the quality of heart that we bring to any situation, especially a situation where someone else is really feeling deeply a loss or um, a disappointment or a rejection or something that really cuts into the heart, that those deep wounds can truly be met with our presence and, and we can have the confidence if we're cultivating this ground, um, as Sharon was just saying, if we're cultivating it on a regular basis when things are fine, you know, as fine as they can be, that if we are moving the heart and mind towards uh, a responsiveness, towards an appropriate response, towards um, a place of evenness, a place of equanimity and kindness and compassion and, and empathetic joy, that we can have the confidence that in that moment, whatever that person needs will emerge. So we can trust the emergence that comes from this deep presence that we're cultivating all the time. And of course, I don't, I don't remember what he said, but I can remember his presence. And I can remember whatever conversation we had and know that it was exactly appropriate in that moment. So um, we, we tend to think that we can make a formula, you know. Pardon? We tend to think we can make a formula about what we can do and so that we'll kind of have it ready. But I think what, what's really beautiful is that when we are so deeply connected and recognize the, rec the connection that we have with each other, that that's what produces the response that's needed. And I'm sure that with your practice and that you're establishing a practice that will, will help you to do that, you know, to come, to come to the words that are needed or the feeling that, and maybe it's not even the word, maybe it's just the quality of the presence that you bring in that moment, the hug or the not hug, because some people don't want to be hugged in that moment, right? But somehow we know that. We know because we, we feel deeply that connection that we're not separate. And so we know what to do, how to do it. Thank you. I think that, um, you know, the courage at times, it's very easy at times like that, especially if it's not someone that you're superbly close to that you know you could just break down. But someone maybe, you know, a friend's parent or a friend of mm -hmm. a friend, and to have the courage and trust in yourself and find that place because, um, you know, obviously without your own experience of your own personal loss as, as you will. Uh, well, thank you, because I think that's really it, to sit with the confidence and ha find the courage that if it's from your heart and yeah. to really find that place yeah. versus I do, just words. I do remember something another teacher said to me, um, a colleague, when, it, when she said, how are you after my mother had died? Right. And I said, oh my goodness, it's still so raw, you know. But of course, I said, it's only been a few months, and she said, don't worry, it will be raw for 15 years. Right? You know? right. and, and it's funny because you would have thought that in that moment you thought, oh, how, you know, how uncomforting. Yeah. But somehow it was, right? That in that moment, that was the right response. 
That was exactly what I needed to hear. It was like, you know, whatever self-pity I was, you know, falling into was like, you know, get over it. It will, it will last for, for a long time. This is the loss of your mother. And so, you know, so it's, so we never know what it is that we know will be the right thing that somebody says. Thank you again. You're welcome. Um, I was wondering how we can sort of wrap our minds around um, all beings. Oh, sorry. I was wondering how we can wrap our meditations around um, all sentient beings. I found it easy, you know, one person, even the room wasn't, wasn't a problem. But like when you say the whole world and mm. every being in it, it becomes a little bit challenging. Yeah, so there, so, so there are a couple of ways. You know, for some people, all beings is much easier than the person in front of you, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, there, are some, there are a lot of different ways that, that it's, it's taught. One way is to do it by sector. And so you have 10 directions, the north, the northeast, the east, the southeast, the south, the southwest, the west, the northwest, above and below. 10 directions, right? And so what I do sometimes is I'll, I'll just imagine that I'm turning my heart towards the north and that my heart is radiating out to all beings in the sea, in the air, in the land, in the, you know, all, all beings everywhere in the north to the north of me. And then I do that, so I do it in all 10 directions. Um, there also, there's another way that it's taught, which is, to do it in pairs, all males and all females, all young and old, all seen and unseen. So you can do it by narrowing the categories down, uh, either by direction or by pairs. Um, and part of, I think, what's wonderful about wishing well-being for all beings is that in some ways it opens up our hearts, right? The thought that we're opening the entire heart to just every single being on this planet and in every planet and the whole, all the galaxies that there's something that gives us a feeling of the boundlessness of the quality of heart that metta is. And so even if in the beginning it may feel like, oh, you know, I, I couldn't possibly take all of this in or it's like it just becomes too conceptual or too, just see if you can feel the opening of the heart that becomes a boundless heart that holds all beings in the sutta. The Buddha says it's like a mother caring for her child, her only child. And if you can bring that kind of care to the whole universe, there's a boundlessness to it and a, a, a spaciousness about that that uh, feels quite wonderful. Any, do you have anything to add on that? You choose. Yeah. Yes, um, earlier today, Sharon, someone had asked you about doing meta for um, a deceased benefactor, and I was very interested to hear your comments on that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I still have your question <laughs> to go to. Um, uh, the question was about offering loving kindness to someone who's deceased. So. 
Um, there are lots of levels in which that is looked at within the Buddhist tradition. Uh, from a very classical Buddhist point of view, of course, that's embedded in a belief system and a cosmology. Uh, and that belief system centers a lot around the idea of rebirth. Um, it's believed quite strongly that even if someone has died, that they're somewhere. You know, and so the ways we take um, this body and this life and partings, and it's just different. Uh, and so even if one is doing, I asked this question when I was in Burma, uh, doing the practice, because one of the kind of vast categories uh, you're encouraged to offer loving kindness to is all living beings. And I said, well, what if they're not living anymore? And they were like, well, they are. <laughs> Somewhere. Um, you know, so that's a response within a belief system which we may or may not share. Um, from the point of view of that belief system, uh, it's felt that, and you know, we're, I see this on my schedule at the very end of the day. Um, I'll have the schedule. It's, it's felt that uh, the strongest force that can connect us beyond this body and beyond this life is good-heartedness. And so in a country like Burma, uh, when a family member or a loved one dies, um, the family or the friends will go, will do an act that is uh, good-hearted, and then they will dedicate the power or the energy of that action to the person who's died, not just as a means of comfort or solace for themselves because they believe that it is a, a very powerful connection. And so um, that's the idea behind this practice called sharing merit, not just for people who've died, but that uh, good-heartedness creates an energy or it generates a, a forcefulness and that we um, generate that anytime we turn our minds toward the good, when we're kind, when we're generous, when we're truthful. In some situation, maybe it would be awfully easy to tell a lie, and we don't. And when we practice meditation, uh, it's considered hugely meritorious. Even if you feel like you're having a completely crummy session, it's the fact that you sat down to do it. You turned your mind towards some sense of possibility that is considered very powerful. And so uh, when I said that's the classical way loving kindness, generally speaking, is offered to someone who has died, um, that is the way. You know, so like I said, you know, uh, people in Burma uh, maybe will uh, commemorate someone's memory by going to the monastery, offering food to everyone who's meditating, and then they'll dedicate the merit of that action to the person who's died. or. Uh, a friend of mine died just before I went to sit in uh, at the Insight Meditation Society with this Burmese teacher, Saida Upandita, in 1984, uh, which was the first time that he came to the States, and it was a three-month retreat. And somewhere in there, um, I told Saida Upandita about my friend having died, and and he said, "Well, now you'll have to do this retreat for both of you." So I want you every night when you finish the day, whatever the day feels like, I want you to finish the day of practice and then dedicate that to the person who's died. So that's generally speaking how it's done. I um, 
I'm one of the people probably in this room or elsewhere in the world who is overwhelmed uh, in compassionate com care for a brother who is 54, just turned 55 a year ago, had a stroke, and eight months in the recovery of his stroke was hit with an autoimmune disorder in just April, which wiped out the recovery from his stroke. It's unlikely he is going to die anytime soon. He is designated a, a quadriplegic, had, had been walking with a cane using his paralyzed leg as a column. And I'm not his favorite sister, I'm one of 10, but I am an available one. So I am walking into a situation that easily goes south because he doesn't like me very much. I don't mean it in that you know, self-pity kind of way. The biggest issue is we're fundamentalist Catholic family and I'm practicing Buddhism and I don't do it or talk about it particularly in front of him, but he's aware. So I know the story about if you're a, a Buddha, it's one thing, if you're a Buddhist, it's another. So I'm trying just to be there, just to be there. And I get, um, I have had this one miraculous little moment where I said, oh, he has to have his urine removed. I'm sorry to be graphic, everybody, please forgive me. But so four times a day, they have to go in and get it because of the quality of this disease. And I was with him one day running around. I said, oh, John, I, about 45 minutes, I've been needing to go to the bathroom. I'm so relieved now. And he said, yeah, we'll try sitting here in this chair and you know, not being even able to do it. And I said, I can't do that. That's your path. I can just be here with you. And it was, it was quite a little miraculous because he changed, he changed totally with that statement. And he went, well, I really am grateful that you're here. But you say what, you know, you get these signs and these feelings of knowing when to. I don't know how. I know I am overwhelmed. I have been committed for a year now. And I get caught up in the, the, what about my life? Or what am I doing? I'm coming out of my own physical ailment. I'm still in a situation where I'm seeing doctors. But I also know that there's a need and that I can't fix the situation or change the situation. So I don't, uh, in the midst of all of this, is this paradox to me of this bodhisattva, which sounds to me an awful lot like somebody trying to change and fix. But I, I want, if you can give me ladies, excuse me, one's eye level and one is not. If you ladies can give me more pointers on how to take care of myself. I hear the idea, but I don't know how to do it. Thank you. <laughs> you want to start? You start. Uh, baby steps. Mm -hmm. I mean, I actually, I just want to, um, first of all, I'm sorry about the whole situation. Um, and also, uh, again, I don't think it's a small thing to know one has to take care of oneself. I think that is already a huge accomplishment because I find it quite rare, uh, to be quite rare, um, and that people burn out all the time in families, at work, wherever it is, because it's, it seems so selfish. You know, it seems so wrong somehow to do that. So that already is a huge accomplishment. And um, beyond that, I think Part of it is really baby steps. It's like, decide what you can do each day. Is it 20 minutes? 
is it two hours? I don't know. Um, and decide how you're going to spend that period of time. Are you referring to for myself? Yeah. Am I going to do for myself? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the context of my, of my comments. So, uh, you know, if, if part of that is meditation practice, that's great. And, but not, in, you know, hopefully not in the sense of like another chore or task. Like, oh no, I've only got half an hour and I've got to spend 20 minutes improving myself. Um, um, not like that. You know, it's like the biggest break in the universe because it's, it's a break from having to present yourself to other people, having to be who you think you're supposed to be or someone else thinks you're supposed, you're supposed to be. It's a break from judging yourself and critiquing yourself and not being good enough. It's like, I'm just going to be in this process. So that's a good thing. And then something that you know, it's kind of nice for yourself, whatever. Um, and in, in terms of the, uh, the bodhisattva, you know, and, and the situation you find yourself in, I think those situations are very common. Um, and the more we have this idea of fixing uh, the worse off we are. Because first of all, um, compassion implies a kind of level playing field. Yeah, compassion implies a kind of level playing field. It's not I am bestowing this kindness upon you, but everybody's very vulnerable. You know, life changes very quickly sometimes. And uh, we're meeting that, but not drowning in that. You know, it's, it's understanding that, um, in effect, we are not alone, neither your brother nor yourself in your situation. That's the other thing is that sometimes we really need some support. We need to be in communication with people who understand what our experience is, and we need to be talking about it. We need to be sharing and helping one another because uh, one of the great cultural burdens we have um, is the sense of isolation that usually accompanies a really bad situation mm -hmm. uh, because it's not acceptable often in, uh, I'll say, the West um, to uh, experience or undergo or display a really bad time a really hard time. It just isn't. And so I can remember being here often uh, teaching, telling the story about someone um, who came to see me who'd had a, a, a really awful incident in her family, terrible, traumatic, terrible situation. And, and she said to me, I don't know, this was maybe like six months after it happened. And and first she said to me something like, um, her friends were kind of intimating to her that maybe she should get over it, that they were getting sort of uncomfortable with her distress. And then she said to me, 
my friends have perfect lives. Mm. Their lives are just golden. Nothing bad ever happens to them. So they're looking at me kind of like, what's wrong with you, you know? I mean, it was really a terrible thing that had happened to her. So first of all, I didn't believe for a single moment that her friends' <laughs> lives were so perfect, you know? Because as we know, a lot happens behind closed doors. Um, and then I had one of those experiences where I heard, I just heard these words come out of my mouth. And what I heard come out of my mouth was, I think you need new friends. <laughs> I said, I always feel funny in front of my friends telling the story, but, but it's a true story. I said, you should meet my friends. They're all a wreck. <laughs> you know, everybody's got something really bad going on. You know, and it's true. I mean, not every day, but, you know, people have stuff that goes on in their lives. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we need one another in that way. Um, and if it's not going to be an intimate circle of friends, then it's some kind of support system, you know, where there can be that kind of sharing and that honesty uh, about everything going on. I have no idea what the microphone is. She's, she's bringing it up there. <coughs> this, uh, yeah, I'd like to know, when is the best time to practice metta? When you first sit or at the end of the sit? It's however it, it works for you. And you don't have to like set it that forever this is how I'm going to do it. The best thing to do is to experiment with um, how it feels for you, there, for myself, uh, well, I've been doing metta, just metta this year. But on, before that, I would do metta either at the beginning of a sit or at the end of a sit or for the whole sit, depending on what was happening in my life or just what felt right at the moment. So I, I think, I don't know if Sharon would agree or disagree, but I, I don't think that there's any one formula for what's best in terms of of your own practice. What I've found is that actually doing metta for this, I've been doing it since February, for this long period of time as the only practice that it has made a huge difference uh, to my, to the practice that I, I do at home. Um, so, and I haven't lost concentration. As a matter of fact, it's really supported concentration in my practice. And I, and I do see some transformations in the way I'm responding to situations. So I recommend highly just trying to do metta alone for a, a while if it, if it feels right to you. But if it just feels as if you really want to do the vipassana practice in combination with metta or karuna or any of the other Brahma Viharas, to experiment for yourself and see from time to time how, what feels right and, and, and do it, but dedicate a, a sufficient period of time to it, whatever you do, and feel a sort of graciousness in how much time you give to it rather than rushing through it. So however that needs to work out for you, that's what I would recommend. Um, oh. How do you cultivate a soft heart? Because um, I think often when we suffer or when 
even when we cause suffering, that it blunts our capacity to be empathetic or to feel. And, you know, and it, and it feels like a sort of a hard, a hardness. Um, I sort of understand the, the notion of being open, of an open heart, um, you know, that's capacious and that, that is, is able to um, um, relate. But how, how, do you, how do you cultivate a soft heart? Um, so the so the question I think I there, she can hear you. You can't hear. Can you hear me now? Is that better? So I probably need to have this raised. Anil, is this? Can you raise this up for me? You'll just turn me up. Okay, you just turned me up. Turn me up. Um, what's that rolling stone? I'm sorry. Um, Softness. So how to cultivate softness. So one of the ways in which I know that I'm not soft or my heart is not soft is sometimes when I'm practicing. Uh, if I make notes in the mind, I can hear them as harsh. So it will be like if I'll just do a practice of noting, you know, for instance, when thinking arises, instead of thinking, thinking, I'll hear thinking. Thinking, right? That kind of, that kind of harshness. And um, what I what I do then is, you know, I I make note of it. I notice that it's harsh. I notice that it's hard, and I see if I can actually make the effort to turn it down. So, and and what I found furthermore is that that it's not as if um, I have a list of qualities of what I would like my heart to feel like, or my mind to be like, or, my, or anything in my practice to be like. That, but again, you know, as we were talking about the right words, it's the same thing of trusting that there will be transformation if we do the practice with consistency and constancy. And the softness that you seek or that you wish is a softness that will emerge because it's already there. It's not like you have to make yourself soft, but that as our hearts open and as they are able to become more and more spacious and hold more and more. And again, you know, it, language is so difficult because as I said that I could, I could see creating um, an image of just getting bigger and bigger and bigger or softer and softer and softer. But practice isn't like that. You know, in any moment, we can be soft or harsh, right? And so even in the, if we were soft in the last moment, the next moment, there can be a harsh response to whatever is happening. And so this awareness that we're cultivating is the awareness of knowing, oh, that was harsh. And, and it's not even that when we say, oh, that was harsh, it's like, oh, that was harsh, I've got to get soft. Right? It's not, it's not that kind of response, but it's, oh, that was harsh. Right? And just in the awareness of it, just in the knowing of it, something shifts. And so the softness that you seek emerges from the ground that you've been cultivating, rather than sort of putting it on from the top down, it's emerging from the, from the ground up. So, um, 
we're not going to be we're not going to get a soft heart by being harsh with the harsh heart right we're going the the softness will come as we can oh that was harsh right just in that response alone there's a softness that comes and so if we're practicing that the softness comes the softness comes and it may come and it may go and it may come and it may go and what i've learned in practice is that um, the qualities that I admire or aspire to as they come to notice that they're here. So you can be searching for a soft heart everywhere and the soft heart is here and we totally miss it. Like you, you, know, you see somebody on the street who looks like they're suffering and the heart responds and, and you don't even notice that the heart has responded. Right? And you still think your heart is harsh, it's not soft. So to look for the presence of things just as much as we look for the absence of things, right? So we, we're much more, it's much easier for us to see when those qualities are missing. So make a, make a space in your practice to see when the soft heart has arrived. And what I've noticed in my practice is that it are, you know, so the times in between get shorter and the times that it stays are longer. But it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an emergence and a, 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 um, a showing up time after time after time after time. Okay, I'm trying to explain this as good as I can. Um, I'm a bit uh, puzzled with the whole idea of the suffering um, because for me, uh, meditation is a space of being out of my mind, not, not in my mind. And for me, suffering is kind of an illusion um, when our mind is trying to resist the uh, reality where we are when when like we are not accepting what's happening in our lives and as I see it um, we should be able to understand that whatever happens um, is something we need to experience in order to grow and learn from it and move on I know there are a lot of hard things as we have learned today um, that are you know going to coming to our lives, but I, I see that we shouldn't see them as the suffering, sufferings, but um, as something that we should embrace, because through those hard things, um, those are the things that are going to take us toward the light, and not, not something that, you know, we should try to get rid of. So that's why I don't, I don't, um, I'm puzzled by this, this meditation about saying like, um, you know, let's, can, can you end the suffering or, or take away whatever is causing the suffering? Because for me, um, that is something that we need to experience as long as it needs to, you know, have something. It has something to give to us. So we shouldn't see it as a suffering, but as something good in effect. I don't know if you <laughs> understand what I'm trying to say here. Me? 
So we don't have to wish for suffering, right? Because as we've seen in our lives, is there anybody here who hasn't suffered? <laughs> so I think we, you know, I think we know that suffering exists, right? That's the first noble truth. But of course, there are also three other noble truths, which is that there's a cause of suffering, the second, the third, that it can end, and the fourth, that there's a path to the end of it. So our practice is not so much about thinking that, well, you know, if I do enough compassion practice, the suffering of the world is going to go away. I'm going to make it end, and everybody's going to live in some wonderful garden, and even when they suffer, they'll embrace it, and and they'll learn what they need to learn from it, and everything will be hunky-dory, and it, even though we're suffering, we'll all be perfectly fine. The, the practice of uh, metta and karuna, or, or loving-kindness and compassion, is a practice about your own heart. So do you wish for people to be in suffering? Or do you see the suffering of being in this human body? and wish that people wouldn't have to endure suffering, right? It's, so it's not so much the understanding of all of life that, you know, the more suffering we have, the better human beings we're going to be. We don't even know that, right? What we do know is that it's painful, it's hard, and that there, is a, there can be an end to suffering. And so to wish that is the very opposite of cruelty in which we wish for people to be in suffering. So it's not, it's not a misunderstanding of the process of life that um, through our sufferings and through the presence for our own sufferings that we learn. It's not a misunderstanding of that, but it's a cultivation of the ground of our heart that, is, that wishes the heart to be kind and compassionate rather than cold and cruel. So that's the, that's the, um, the path of the, of the practice, not so much um, thinking that, that, compassion, uh, that suffering is a terrible thing, which of course it is, that should end because it's, it's, you know, it's no good, it's, it's a terrible thing that people have to suffer. Again, as Sharon was saying, we teach it separate from the equanimity practice, the, but it, which is a difficult thing because the equanimity practice reminds us that it's a whole web of causes and conditions that brings suffering. It's a whole, um, it's a whole web of causes and conditions that we're in the midst of. And so our, our equanimity practice helps us to meet whatever is arising with a kind of balance, with a kind of wisdom, with a kind of understanding. But it's not than wishing that people have more suffering so that they'll learn, right? Because that's, that would be cool. Yeah, and maybe I'll just say one thing and I'll ask you to repeat your question because I'm haunted by the fact that yeah. <laughs> I didn't answer it. Um, I think part of it is um, our own understanding. It's like when I said those phrases keep changing meaning over time, I think part of it is that, that to wish that someone, in addition to everything Gina just said, to, to wish someone to be free of suffering is not wishing for them to be free of all painful experience, because it's impossible. You know, that will just never ever happen. And to confuse the two, 
would be a problem on a lot of different levels. The other thing is, uh, and I think Gina um, said this uh, now in, in one version of that, not everybody uses suffering in a noble way, in a way that opens the heart, that has us feel at one with others, that makes us kinder. There are plenty of people, and each one of us at different times has probably been in a difficult or painful situation and became more embittered and more frightened and more resistant and more isolated as a result. And so, uh, unlike, I'll, I'll say it a little differently than Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> um, uh, from the Buddhist point of view, we actually wouldn't say that suffering is redemptive, but how we relate to the suffering possibly can be redemptive but it ain't always going to be that way. Um, and so the last thing, this is more in accord with Martin Luther King Jr. and what you were saying earlier is that um, it isn't exactly in this context, it's a little bit different, but there's some teaching in uh, Tibetan tradition where there are certain um, understandings that are useful when applied to us, but you would never apply them to someone else. So with your own suffering, it might be very useful uh, for one to say, um, there's an opportunity here. This is something I might grow from. This is something we all share. This is something that can make me feel closer to others. But you would never look at somebody else and say, by the way, you know, you have to use that suffering <laughs> in a way that is redemptive, that, you know, because that's not the point. Uh, the point is our own ability to transform what could be um, a very tough and seemingly um, fruitless time to something that is actually fruitful, which we can do for sure. You know, it's a power that that we have, but it's just not that useful to inform other people that they're uh, not only are they wasting their lives, but they're wasting their suffering. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't work. <laughs> so, okay, yeah. Can you repeat that? Uh, sure. The, the short version of what I asked is I was just um, hoping you could uh, maybe discuss a little bit on um, how to go about sort of systematically cultivating meta in your regular practice. Go ahead. You wanted the question. Okay. Here's <laughs> my question. It's your question. Um, I, uh, I go back to really what Gina was saying before. The most significant uh, question or consideration for our practice is what is going to allow us to actually do it. Uh, because the transformation, sadly enough, uh, comes from the doing of it, not from thinking about doing it. It's a lot easier to think about doing it than to actually do it. Um, but it's the very regular systematic, or even non-systematic, but the very regular persistent um, training of the mind that actually leads to transformation. I was uh, at some university where they were doing, they are doing uh, some really fantastic studies on compassion meditation, and they were presenting their findings to the Dalai Lama, and it was um, 
um, there are a couple of things that I found sort of highly amusing in, uh, in the presentation. One was, as often happens at the end of a whole presentation, we, you know, we taught compassion meditation to these students and they practiced this many days and they, you know, and they showed, they displayed big brain changes within two weeks of practice. Um, this and that, they often, there's often a summation uh, that goes something like, and from this, finding your holiness, we actually can begin to see that compassion is like a skill. And I always sit there and think, well, duh, you know. But uh, in this particular study, which, which I found also amusing, was there was this big question about the dose response, right? So that means, as many of you know uh, from your work, um, it's, the, it's the exploration of whether uh, a bigger dose of a certain, say, medication is going to have a different effect than a smaller dose. Or if you take it three times a week, is that going to be less effective than five times a week? So they had, they had this whole thing about the dose response. And it, it was something like, um, not surprisingly, people who practice for half an hour a day, five days a week, were getting even more <laughs> of a change than Duh. those who practiced twice a week. And I was sitting there thinking, wow. Duh. That's, that's, how much was that grant? You know, but the really, really big difference was between those who just thought about doing it and those who did it. You know, so absolutely the crucial thing is to do it. And that's why uh, almost every question I ever get, sort of in that light, I say it depends on you. Like, should I sit in the morning or should I sit in the evening? Should I sit alone or should I sit with others? Should I sit at the same time every day? Should I sit in the same place every day? It depends on what's going to help you really do it. That's all that matters. So if you want to um, bring loving kindness just somewhat into your practice, that's a fine way of doing it. You can uh, choose whether to do it first and then do some kind of mindfulness or whatever your other practice is. And, or do it in the reverse order, it's really up to you. If you want to do as Gina was describing, just devote a period of time to simply doing loving kindness practice. I would say that um, you might, again, use those bookends of starting with a session with yourself, ending with all beings, and then very slowly include others in between, like maybe include a benefactor, say, for a full week or month. It, it depends on where you feel your energy is. And then do a friend. And then do another friend. You know, and that, and, I mean, you know the progression, I imagine, or it's easy enough to find the classical progression. You know, yourself and a benefactor and a friend and a neutral person and a difficult person and, and then all beings, um, you know, more fully. But you can really, really slow it down and uh, put in a fair amount of time with each category and just see where it takes you. Okay. Now you're in charge of the microphone. <laughs> Sharon, can you give us the, um, the traditional four lines again? The, it was the way I had it in Burma? Yeah, free from danger, Free from mental. suffering. Free from mental suffering. Free from mental suffering. 
free, free from, from physical suffering. Free from physical suffering. And then uh, one translation is live with ease, as we've been using, and one is have ease of well-being. Okay. I was doing both outside, and what I found was interesting is that the being free from, you get closer to what is actually happening, because usually you're suffering more than you're being happy. And so I don't skip over that part and gloss to some kind of fake sense of happy. And then the happy part actually feels more honest when I can go to that second. So they're really different. Mm -hmm. and, and I like the, the being free from and getting kind of rid of this burden and then seeing what space is there afterwards. And then usually it's just space that's pretty light. Mm -hmm. And that's not the birthday cake mm -hmm. happy, it's just plain fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a quick other question, which is um, that I have a, t a real habit of going to empathy, which I think after today I realize is maybe fake empathy, but um, I, I have a tendency to skip myself. I tend to go to the other person's point of view. I think a lot of women do this. Um, but uh, I, I've done this a lot in my very significant relationships, and I tend to get lost. So I've been recommended to me to do meta practice and such, and I think this will help. But I just wondered if you had any other mm -hmm. tips on this habitual pattern. Cool. So, so it's not unusual, right, that we think that we go to others and and uh, forget ourselves. So in what you might want to do is really just do practice for yourself for a period of time, is what I would suggest. So that you just do practice for yourself for a period of time and then see how, see how that feels. Okay, we're gonna have to stop. I wanna do a formal sharing of the merit. If you don't mind, it'll take like two minutes. And uh, we're gonna have I think just some closing announcements, and then uh, I even have some closing announcements, come to think of it. So remind me that I do, otherwise I'll forget. Um, and I don't know if you have the closing announcements, too. I don't have any closing announcements. Okay, so the idea, once again, of sharing in the merit, merit is a little bit of a funny translation, but it's a common one, um, is this idea of uh, energy, almost like a force. Uh, of good-heartedness. So it would be quite classical at the end of a day like this just to, for a moment, reflect back on the day and appreciate yourself for having made this commitment, for having been here, could have stayed in bed, uh, done other things that you were willing to think some things through, maybe took some risks, practiced, started over and over and over again when your mind wandered. This is all powerful stuff. And it's not the same as conceit or arrogance to appreciate that and feel that appreciation actually fill you. We have the sense of possibility. We can make these choices, and we did.
and then offer that sense of appreciation, of joy, of that energy to those who helped you be here in the past or today. Maybe they're taking care of things at home or helped you learn about meditation or this place or whatever. Just as different beings come to mind, you can get a sense of them and dedicate the power of your practice to their well-being. May the merit of my practice be shared with you so that you may be happy, you may be peaceful, or whatever words seem to work for you. And those whom you know are hurting in an affirmation that our practice could never just be for ourselves alone. That the inner work we do is dedicated to the welfare and happiness of others. And then with one another, as we've all shared this experience together. and all beings everywhere. May the merit of my practice or the power of my practice be shared with all beings so that all beings may be happy, may be peaceful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.